Now, friends, this is a very rugged portion of Scripture, yet it can minister to our hearts, and especially this is a good section for politicians. It's a good section for the rulers of a nation, and it's good for a nation. Now, we are following both kingdoms of Israel and Judah. In the north, ten tribes constitute the northern kingdom of Israel, and in the south, Judah constitutes the main part with Benjamin. And that's where the line of David is reigning. And that's the line that, of course, that will be followed right on into the New Testament to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last time we saw that line was almost eliminated by Athaliah, a daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, who had married into the family of David. But there was one little fella that a nurse had hidden away. And she kept him there till he was seven. And Jehoiada, the high priest, brought him out to the people, having got the protection of the captains and the leaders of the nation. And he reigned until he was 47 years old, and then he was murdered by his own servants. You see, this is a bloody period. It's not a pretty period at all. And yet, during the reign of Joash, it was a period of revival. In fact, the first revival that these people had. And it came at a most unlikely time. And that's the reason that I believe that we can have revival in our day. And we're going to see it later on in this same book, by the way, because there were actually five revival periods. And we'll put a great emphasis on this when we get to the two books of Chronicles. Now we find here at chapter 13, as we come here, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, he reigns over Israel for 17 years, and he follows in the sinful steps of Jeroboam. Actually, there's nothing very sensational or interesting in his reign at all. So many people feel that sin and that type of thing brings excitement into a life. May I say there's nothing quite as boring as sin after a while. The man who starts drinking reaches the day when he's a drunkard. And when he becomes a drunkard, he is as boring as anyone can possibly be, and life loses its purpose. The same thing is true of any individual that indulges in sin. This is a period when there's really not much excitement going on. The excitement goes on when God is moving, friends, and how we need him today on the scene. And so we find here, and I'm going to begin reading and just hop, skip, and jump through this section here. I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 13 of Second Kings. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned seventeen years. Well, you can see this doesn't seem to be very exciting, does it not? Well, we are told here he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. 
You see, Jeroboam seems to be the standard for the northern kingdom. He was a sinner. He put up the golden calves. He led Israel away from the worship of the true God, led them into sin. Now, when Ahab and Jezebel came to the throne, they went way beyond that. They began the active worship of Baal, which actually was demonism. And they introduced that. Now, this man that is beginning to reign, who actually is a son of Jehu, he, like his father, he doesn't go to Baal worship or as far in the depths of sin as Ahab and Jezebel did, but he does go as far as Jeroboam did, and that's bad enough. Now we are told that the king of Syria, Haziel, came against him. And as a result, why, this man, he knew he was in danger and he was in trouble. He did turn to the Lord. And in verse 4, And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed him. And the Lord gave Israel a Savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Now, notice how gracious God is. The minute that these people call upon him, the minute the king called upon the Lord, he heard and he answered the prayer and he delivered these people. How gracious God is. My friend, you and I today do not realize how good God is and how good he is to you and to me today. Oh, the goodness of God. How wonderful he is. And it's seen now in the life of this king. It'd be very easy to say. I'm sure that some of us would have said, wait a minute, let's wait and see if you're going to come back to the Lord. And if you promise to serve the Lord, well, then we'll do something for you. But we have to see something on your part. The Lord just heard his prayer, and the Lord answered. But now wait, he's not going to get by with sin. You may be sure of that. And we find here, as a result, Verse 6, Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked therein. And there remained the grove also in Samaria. Prosperity is not always an evidence that people are walking with God. It could mean, as it did in this case, they'd called upon God and he'd been good to them and heard them. But they went on in sin. But the day came. We find verse 7, Neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz, but fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. In other words, he never was able to come back to really defend his kingdom. And then we have the record here, verses 8 and 9, of the death of Jehoahaz. This is the record of man. The king is dead. Long live the king. And here comes another king to the throne. We're told in the 30th and 7th year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash. And now it's really become confusing because the names on both sides are similar, if not identical. And as a result, while you don't know who's reigning and you don't know where he's reigning, and you don't know what the circumstances are. This is a very confusing period. And I'm not sure but what the Lord left it that way for a very definite reason. And we're told in verse 11, 
He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked there. Now, that was the standard that when a king came to that level of sin, God always judged. Now, we're told the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might, wherewith he fought against Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria. Now, this is confusing. And the reason that it's confusing is because we started off with Jeroboam, and it looks like he's come around again for the second time. But it's another Jeroboam. This was Jeroboam the second, and he begins to reign now. And it was at this time that Elisha fell sick. Well, it was the sickness that brought death to him. Now, will you notice what happened at this particular time? And I want to begin reading at verse 14. Now, Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. You see, Elisha had been a power of strength to the northern kingdom. And very frankly, in a way that Elijah had not been. Even the king here, when he takes sick, actually, he's heartbroken because he had been a great help to him. Elijah was not. When Elijah went up in the chariot, they had a big party at the palace, I can assure you. Verse 15, And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. Elisha had the visit from him, but Elisha's not accepting his sympathy or the flowers he sent. He still is a prophet of God, and he's giving a message to him. And we're told here what he did. He said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. He put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hand, and he said, Open the window eastward. He opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek, till thou have consumed them. Well, Joash is not noted for his faith. He's weeping over the prophet that died. But he's not a man that's a man of great faith. And he didn't believe that he was going to get a victory over the king of Syria. Verse 18, And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground, he smote thrice, and stayed. The man of God was wroth with him, and said, Thou shouldst have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria, till thou hast consumed him. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria, but thrice." You see, he didn't have faith to believe that God would give him deliverance. And so discouragement and lack of faith caused him to quit. How many very wonderful projects for God today never come to fruition? They're never executed because a child of God meets some opposition when he begins, or he has certain discouragements and disappointments, and then he leaves off and says, well, it's not God's will. Oh, how many weak believers are hiding back of that little phrase today, it's not the will of God. Why, my friend, 
That's the thing that this man, Joash, was saying. He only smote three times. He said, well, I don't think God will give me the victory. God says, I will give you the victory. Keep at it. Keep going on. We hear so much today. We have this easy believism, this soft faith that we have, that you just sit on the sidelines and, as it were, you more or less engage in wishful thinking. And that's faith. My friend, God expects you to move for him. You believe that God can use you? Then why don't you get busy? I hear people say today, oh, I want to do something for God. When I come around again, they're still sitting there. God can use you, but you need to move, my friend. What great lessons are here for us, practical lessons. Verse 20, And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming end of the year. It came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, stood on his feet. Even in death, Elisha was a miracle-working individual. What a tremendous power of strength he had been in that nation. Now we are told here, But Hazel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them, had compassion on them, and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So Hazael, king of Syria, died. And then Hadad his son reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. In other words, as his faith, so it was done unto him. And God gave him, therefore, great deliverance. Now we have here the reign of Amaziah over Judah. And as we've indicated before, Amaziah was a good king. In fact, an exceptionally good king. He reigned 29 years. Let me just read a few verses here to get this before us. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. That's confusing, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. You need our chart to follow through at this point. He was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And what else are we going to hear? His mother's name was what? Jehoadan of Jerusalem. I tell you, the mother will receive credit when he's a good king. She'll receive blame when he's a bad king. And this man, Amaziah, is a good king. And so he must have had a wonderful mother. The name is given here. Now we are told that this man reigned at this particular time. And probably I should just make a comment or two. Amaziah, son of Joash, he succeeds to the throne of Judah. And he does that which is right in the sight of the Lord. But he does not quite measure up to David's standard. And you'll recall that became the standard. Verse 3, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all things as Joash, 
his father did. Didn't quite measure up to David, you see. And we find that the civil war between the two kingdoms continues during this particular period. I'm not going into that any farther. We'll come back to all of this in Chronicles. And we find now that Jeroboam the second he becomes king over the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Amaziah, verse 17, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, 15 years. Now, the rest of the acts of Amaziah, they're written in the book of Chronicles, and we're going to see those later, by the way. Now, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, That's way up in the north. But they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. And they brought him on horses. He was buried in Jerusalem with his father in the city of David. Now, Azariah is the man that comes in now. All the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. And this man, Azariah, is the man we know as Uzziah. And it was during the reign of this man that Isaiah began his prophetic ministry. We're told he built Elath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his father. And we have here a record of the reign of Jeroboam. And you guessed it, he didn't do very well. He was a bad king. Now, Isaiah, who comes to the throne, and Jeroboam, the second king of Israel... And he reigns 41 years, and he does evil according to the sins of Jeroboam the first. And it's very boring, by the way. He restores the border of Israel according to Jonah, son of Amittai the prophet. That's an interesting thing. Maybe you hadn't ever noticed that before, but here is a historical reference to Jonah. And it confirms the fact that Jonah was a real person and prophet in Israel. And I probably should turn and read this here in the 25th verse, by the way. Let me see if I can pick that up here. Verse 25, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. That's Jonah who wrote the book of Jonah, by the way. And here's a historical reference to him. We have the death of Jeroboam II, and then Zechariah comes to the throne. We're now moving down toward the end, actually, of this nation. And I don't know whether we'll get to it next time, but shortly we'll be to the end of this. Now, in chapter 15 here, we have Uzziah, king of Judah, And he's a good king, but he did something he should not have done. He intruded into the priest's function, and he's smitten with leprosy. And we are told that actually he's a good king, in fact, a very good king. It broke the heart of Isaiah the prophet when he died, because Isaiah was afraid, and his fears were well-grounded that the nation would have a king that would lead them back into idolatry, and they did. And we find here that Zechariah, the last of the line of Jehu, he's slain by Shalem after he'd reigned only six months. 
And Shalem didn't do very well either. He only reigned one month, and then Menahem overthrows and slays Shalem. This is a dark period for the nation. And he reigns ten years, and he does evil as Jeroboam had done. Now, it was at this time that Paul, king of Assyria, comes against Israel. And Menahem pays a thousand talents of silver to preserve his kingdom. And we find at his death that Pekahiah, his son, succeeded to the throne. He only reigns two years when Pekah, his captain, conspires and slays him. Now, during the reign of Pekah, tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, comes against Israel and takes captive the tribe of Naphtali. Pekah is slain by Hoshea, and Jotham reigns in Judah and is recognized as a good king, by the way. We pass over, actually, in this section, the reign of Uzziah. We'll pick that up when we get to Chronicles and also the book of Isaiah. Now today, as we come to the 16th chapter of Second Kings, I'm sure that many of you are finding it just a bit confusing. And also, it may be you're not finding this as interesting as some other sections. If you're interested in history, this is intensely interesting. If you are interested in spiritual lessons, for us today, something that's very practical, why, I think you also will find this extremely helpful to us today. Because all of these things happened under them, for example. Now, we are following here both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And just as we are going through the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments, we take some of the Old Testament, then the New Testament, then we then come back to the Old, and then we have some there and go to the New and have some there. And we advance on two fronts. And as soon as we finish Second Kings, we'll be going to the Epistle to the Romans in the New Testament. Now, we have here in Kings the line of the family of David followed in the southern kingdom of Judah, but not exclusively, because there is interwoven all along the kings in the northern kingdom. Now, as we've said, there hasn't been a good king in the lot, and we have now come down quite a ways. In fact, we are right now at the time when we're going to see the end of the northern kingdom, the next chapter we'll see Assyria come down and take them into captivity. Now, as we come here, we saw last time, and I probably should mention it, that we are told that after Jotham had reigned, he'd been a good king, Micah the prophet prophesied during this period. Isaiah was living during that period. And then Ahaz came to the throne. Ahaz was not a good king, a bad king. And it was at this time that Pekah, who was the king in the northern kingdom, and he's a bad king, because all of them are bad up there, then Hoshea plotted against him and formed a conspiracy and slew him, murdered him, and he became actually the last king. Now, in chapter 16, we back up just a little because we're told now in the 17th year of Pekah, he reigned 20 years before he was murdered. This was in his 17th year 
the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, Ahaz, as we've indicated, was not a good king, a bad king. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. He didn't do what was right, which actually means he did wrong. Verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and they were bad. Yea, and he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Now, he did a very terrible thing, which was the offering of children to God, that is, to a pagan heathen god. Generally, it was to Marduk or to Baal. And it was about as low as you could go spiritually. And this was the thing that Ahaz turned to. We are told that he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, he went the whole route into idolatry and pagan and heathen worship. Now we find that while he was king, Pekah came up against him. And what happened was this, and Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Now, Isaiah has an extended section on this. In fact, if you go over to the prophecy of Isaiah, which we'll not take time to do today, but we find out that in Isaiah, the seventh chapter through the tenth, and this is a very important section, you have in it the mention of the virgin birth of Christ, and you have in it also the mention of the fact that there is coming one whose name is Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, and so on. So, Isaiah's prophesying at this time to this man, Ahaz, who will not listen to God. He is trying to get help from down in the land of Egypt. And very frankly, he wasn't doing very well down there. And so Isaiah challenged him to trust God. And Ahaz then made an appeal to Assyria for help. And the Assyrians, they take Damascus. The fact of the matter is that actually was not good at all because it opened up the door for the Assyrians to come down and they ultimately took the northern kingdom into captivity. Now we read in verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. God had given the prophecy that he had not be overcome. And at that time, I'm reading verse 6 now, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. That is, up to the time that Second Kings was written. Now, this is the first time that the word Jew is mentioned in the Bible. And it'll be mentioned, of course, quite a few times after this, 
But Israel now gets the term Jews. And I want to call particular attention to this because of the fact that there are those today who are actually anti-Semitic, and they talk about the fact that that name applied only to Judah. Well, it's quite interesting. The first time it's used, it applies to those that are up in the north, up on the border of Syria, actually. So that I think that that will not hold water at all. All 12 tribes were given that name. Now we're told in verse 7, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm thy servant, thy son, come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria. He shouldn't have done that, but he did. And we're told, verse 8, And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And so the Assyrians now, they are bribed pretty well. The king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus. Now that's up in Syria. He took it, and he carried the people of it captive to Kerr and slew Rezin. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, the fashion of the altar, the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. And he wanted one built down in the land. All the time, this man, Isaiah, is prophesying to him and actually against him because of what he's doing. Now, will you notice, as we move on through this chapter, we are told that this great altar that he had seen in Damascus that had impressed him, no longer worshiping the living and true God. He has this altar, a duplicate of it, built down in the land of Judah. And notice now we are told here, verse 17, And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases, removed the laver from off them, and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that was under it, and put it upon a pavement of stone. Now, he took down, you see, the altar of the living and true God. And we're told in the covert for the Sabbath that they had built in the house, and the king's entry without turned thee from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. Now, notice, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his father, was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now we come to not only a good king, but one who also led in revival. As I've said before, we're going to be talking about revivals in not only Second Kings, but also when we get to Chronicles. Now, in chapter 17, we've come now to the end of the line as far as Israel, the ten northern tribes, are concerned. And they're carried into captivity by Assyria. And in chapter 17, we have Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. He captures the northern kingdom, exacts tribute from them. And when he discovers that King Hoshea had formed a conspiracy against him. 
he besieges Samaria, and after three years takes the northern tribes into captivity. And we'll see that now here in chapter 17. Let me read this. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. He's not as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, not as bad as Ahaziah, but he's bad enough, by the way. And notice what happens now. Verse 3, Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. You see, now there is an attempt to try to win over Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land, went up to Samaria, and besieged it three years. Now Samaria was the city that Amri, the father of Ahab, had built. And then Ahab came along and had built it, built a palace up there. I've been there. I think I've said this before. It's one of the most beautiful spots that you'll find in that land. You couldn't find a more beautiful place. But now the king of Assyria comes up and besieges the city. And we are told in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria. He carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Mede. Now there are those that say that the ten tribes are lost. And the fact of the matter is, they don't say they're lost. They say that they popped up in Great Britain somewhere and that the United States is part of this. Now that makes a very nice theory. I'm sure it ministers to the pride of a great many folk to feel like that we are, you know, of the ten lost tribes. But the interesting thing is that this idea of ten lost tribes is entirely man-made. You don't find it in the Word of God at all. For instance, now way over in the New Testament, when James wrote his epistle, they weren't lost because, listen to him, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Uh, so apparently, James didn't think they were lost because he writes his letter to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And at that time, they were not lost. So if they got lost, they got lost between there and where we are today. And of course, the theory of these folks is that they got lost when they were carried into captivity. They were no more lost than Judah was lost, for that matter, friends. And when they returned back to the land, you'll find there were those out of all the tribes that came back. But actually, very few of any of the tribes came back. There must have been several million of them went into captivity, 
And out of the captivity, there came about 65,000. So regardless of the tribe, very few came back. And you might say all 12 tribes are lost, if you're going to say 10 are lost. But the interesting thing is that none of them have been lost. Now we are told here in chapter 17, verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Now, the Lord had been patient with these people over a period of approximately 200 years. In fact, it's a little better than 200 years. After they divided from the northern kingdom, God had very patiently dealt with them, giving them every opportunity and an ample time to return to him. But they did not. They continually went off into idolatry, and now... The Word of God is very clear. God sent them in captivity because of this very thing. They worshiped other gods. Now that we are told, verse 9, And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. They built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. They set them up images and groves, in every high hill and under every green tree. You see, on top of the hill and under these trees was this pagan worship. It was gross immorality and licentiousness. And the children of Israel indulged in it. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. Now, God had put out the heathen ahead of them, You think God will permit his own people to stay in the land when they do the same thing? Well, he wouldn't. He also put them out of the land. We're told now, verse 12, For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Now, verse 13, listen to this. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets, by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Now, God had sent to these people. He had sent Ahijah. He had sent Elijah. He'd sent Micaiah. He'd sent Elisha. He'd sent Jonah and Amos and Hosea. These prophets had been prophets in the north. Now, down in the southern kingdom, God had sent Joel. He'd sent Isaiah and Micah. And later on, he'll be sending Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Jeremiah. All of these warning them what would take place. Now, listen to verse 14. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers, that did not believe in the Lord their God. What was it? They were guilty of unbelief. That's the great sin of mankind, not to believe God. 
You and I are living in a contemporary culture that has ruled God out. He's not appealed to today in our educational system. He's not appealed to today in our government. And unfortunately, he's not appealed to in our churches to a great extent today. And as a result, God will judge us just as he judged his own people long ago. Now we are told in verse 15, they rejected his statutes, his covenants that he made with their fathers, his testimonies which he testified against them. They followed vanity, became vain, went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Now, the northern kingdom's gone into captivity. What about the southern kingdom? Verse 19, also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them, delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he'd cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, they departed not from them, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now, the king of Assyria puts people from other places in that land. That's the northern kingdom and that land was later on called Samaria. Here's where the Samaritans began. Verse 29, Howbeit every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in their city wherein they dwelt. So that now you see a mixture, a polyglot here, of peoples. There's a great deal of intermarriage. And these were the Samaritans that we deal with when we come, of course, to the New Testament. Now, this brings us to the end of the northern kingdom. They will never again be a northern kingdom. They are scattered, but not lost. I trust we understand that very clearly. Now, we are going to follow the destiny of the southern kingdom. Now, the reason that God didn't send Judah into captivity at this time. It's because they did have a few good kings. There was a time of revival. And for the sake of David, because David was a man after God's own heart. Now, friends, we come to 2 Kings, the 18th chapter. The northern kingdom has now gone into captivity, into Assyria. And therefore, from here on to the end of 2 Kings... We're only going to follow the southern kingdom of Judah. At least it's going to be less complicated than it was before. We're only following one line of king. Now we come to the King Hezekiah. And this section is a remarkable section. You say to me, why do you think it's so remarkable? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's not only recorded here in Second Kings, it's recorded in Second Chronicles, and it's also recorded in the historical section of the prophecy of Isaiah. Right in the center 
of the book of Isaiah, there is a historic section. And this is something that we are going to be looking at later on, of course, when we get there. But this is a section that divides Isaiah on one side and on the other. Right in the middle of the book, we have this section that actually is a historic section. And we'll be following that later on. And we have all of this over there. So I'll hit high points here and emphasize certain things here. And when we get there, to these other two places, there'll be other things to emphasize. There'll be some duplication, of course. But I've got so that I don't mind duplication for the simple reason that I got quite a reaction when we were in the Gospels. I would come to something in the gospel, for instance, of Mark or Luke, and I'd say, well, now, we saw this in the gospel of Matthew, and I'll just pass over it. And I got any number of letters saying, it is all right for the children of Israel to pass over the Red Sea, but let us not pass over so much of the gospels. And I learned my lesson, because many said they just tuned in and they didn't know what we'd said in Matthew. So we won't hesitate to repeat a great deal where God's Word repeats it, but we do want to call attention to certain things. Now we have seen that the northern kingdom went into captivity for certain specific reasons. And the reasons were given, and we looked at them last time. First of all, they disobeyed God. They disobeyed Him, and He made that very clear to them that they had disobeyed him. The Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets, all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments. And they didn't. Then we're told that they doubted God. We find that they would not hear, but they also hardened their necks. And like the neck of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And we're told in verse 14, they did not believe. They doubted God. And not only that, they defied God. They refused to observe the sabbatic year for 490 years. That's a very interesting thing. And they rejected his statutes, his covenant. And we'll see later on that God says that it was specifically because of the Sabbath day. And in Second Chronicles 36, 21, it says, "...to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah unto the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years." Now, these are the three reasons. They disobeyed God, they doubted God, and they defied God. They went into captivity. Now, during that period in the southern kingdom was a very wonderful king. In fact, he's the best king that reigned in that land after David. There's none that'll compare to Hezekiah. And he's the son of Ahaz. Ahaz, a very wicked king, and yet he has this very wonderful son. This man, Hezekiah, is an exceptionally good king. I'm reading now at verse 1, chapter 18 of Second Kings. Now it came to pass 
in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Notice whether a king is good or bad, his mother is always mentioned. If he's a bad king, she'll have to take part of the blame. If he's a good king, then she shares in the credit. It's amazing how the Word of God calls attention to the mothers of these kings. Now, verse 3, listen to this language. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Now, he was on a par with David. That's not all. Listen to this. Verse 4, he removed the high places. He broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Now, friends, this is quite a remarkable thing about this man, Hezekiah. He is a man that, as we shall see, will lead in a revival. We'll talk about his revival later on, however. But he was remarkable in many, many ways. But now our attention is called to something that maybe we would have passed over. That brazen serpent that Moses put up in the wilderness. What happened to it? Well, they kept it. Naturally, it would be a tremendous memento. And it was put up in the temple. Now, the day came when the children of Israel began to worship it. They worshiped the brazen serpent. Instead of just looking to it in faith when they were smitten by the serpent and were saved, they forgot the meaning of it. It was pointing to Christ. Our Lord had said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that was fulfilled in Christ. But these people now have turned the thing all around, and they have begun to worship this brazen serpent. It becomes actually a god to them. And I've been doing quite a bit of study of the seven churches. Over in the city of Pergamos, Pergamum as it was called then, they worshiped the serpent. Over there. I'm going to be talking about that later on, but they worshiped a serpent. Well, the children of Israel are here worshiping a serpent, and they're burning incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Now, what did this man do? Well, he broke it in pieces. It's time to get rid of it. May I say, I think here a great spiritual lesson. There are certain organization. There have been certain movements. There have been certain methods that God has used in the past and been wonderfully blessed. But the organization doesn't know when God's through with it, and it refuses to disband. I could name, which I'm not going to because I don't want to get in trouble, 
But I could name you a half a dozen organizations that I'm confident God raised up, and they served a great purpose. They accomplished a great deal, but they went to seed. Because of the fact that they were so wonderfully blessed of God, why they had quite an organization, and there were quite a few jobs. Now these men that are running these organizations, they just keep running the organization. No reason for it to exist other than it's perpetuating a job for these individuals. I can name several like that today. Actually, it's become Nehushtan. It's become a brazen serpent that at one time served a purpose and was mightily used to God. But the day came when God was through with it. And there are methods like that. I have been in churches where people have said to me, well, this is the way we've been doing it for 50 years. Well, my friend, if this is the way you've been doing it for 50 years, then it's time to change that method. You ask me, because, you know, there's no monotony with God. It's amazing today. Let me give you a little instance of this. Did you know that Paul never gave an invitation in a meeting and had people come forward? Never did. Apparently, Dwight L. Moody began that. And every evangelist thinks that he has to do that today. And I have seen it become actually a stumbling block. And I'm of the opinion that one of the things that's killed evangelism in our day, and it's been killed pretty well, yet there's some splendid evangelists around over this country today, is because of that invitation. God led Moody to do it, but he may not lead you to do it. The best converts that I ever had never came from a Sunday service, although when I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, I don't think we ever missed a Sunday for what we didn't see converts. But friends, the best converts, those that were real, were those that were saved in the Bible study on Thursday night when no invitation was given. I can put my finger across this country today on over a hundred people that were saved at that time. But you see... We didn't follow a method there. You can certainly begin worshiping a brazen serpent and call it Nehushtan. And I spend time with that because I think this is important to note today. Just because God used something in the past doesn't mean he's going to use the same method today. And thank God this man Hezekiah killed the serpent. And I'm of the opinion a great many of the long-faced saints really criticize Hezekiah. He said, boy, he's gotten rid of this marvelous, wonderful, brazen serpent. Thank God he broke it to pieces, friends. And if you've got a few little idols lying around your church or in your life, I would suggest you get rid of some little method, some particular way of doing something. Maybe you ought to change it. Now, will you notice, verse 5, "...he trusted in the Lord God of Israel." so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, if there was none after him to compare to him and none before him, then he's outstanding. He is on a par with David. I introduce you today to King Hezekiah, one of the great kings mightily used of God. And that's the reason that his life is given to us three times in the Old Testament. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah. Now, will you notice, 
Verse 6, For he clave to the lower, departed not from following him, and kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. Now, I would say he has another qualification, and that is, he is a courageous king. And he not only did that, he led his army against the Philistines. Verse 8, he smote the Philistines, even under Gaza, and the borders there, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Now, we are told he not only besieged it, then the three years he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. That is the northern kingdom. Now, there's nothing between the king of Assyria and Hezekiah now but a barbed wire fence, and that's been taken down. He's in a bad spot. Now the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria, put them in Hala, Habor, the rivers of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and would not hear them, nor do them. Now Sennacherib, notice, the king of Assyria, now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah, and he took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended, return from me, that which thou puttest on me will I bear. The king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver, thirty talents of gold. In other words, he tried to rebel, didn't succeed. Now he's having to pay. Now, Sennacherib, he seeks to terrify the southern kingdom of Judah. And he uses a pretty clever method, by the way. And we find here, Sennacherib threatens Jerusalem, and he sends Rabshak, a captain of Assyria. He insults Hezekiah, and he attempts to frighten him. Now, notice what happens. Verse 17, and I'm reading again. The king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. They went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the Fuller's Field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now Rabsacah said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Now he suggests two things. He says, Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all those that trust on him. Now, he says, if you're depending on Egypt to help you, you're wrong. Now, he says something else. Verse 22, But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places, whose altars, Hezekiah taken away? 
You see, when Hezekiah took away the high places, this old king Sennacherib thought he was taking down the altars to the living and true God, but he wasn't. He was taking down pagan altars, and they only worshiped God in Jerusalem at the one altar, and they only approached him through a bloody sacrifice. Now, he says, looks like you've thrown over your God, and you're going to need him at this time. Now, he says... Now, therefore, I pray thee, give pledges to my lord, the king of Assyria, and I'll deliver thee two thousand horses, and so on. And so Eliakim, verse 26, then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna, and Joah unto Rabshakeh, speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. You see, all the people of Jerusalem were lined on the wall. They were hearing all this. Now, these men said, speak to us in the Syrian language. We understand it. And old Rabshakeh said, not on your life. He was putting this on TV. This was really brainwashing the people. He says, but Rabshakeh said unto them, this is verse 27, hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the man which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung? That's an awful thing that he says. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Now, it looked bad. You see, there getting through to the people, brainwashing them, of course, using propaganda. Mind how the public has always been brainwashed. Been brainwashed today, too, by the way. And here we find Rabshakeh telling that what they ought to do is to surrender. Now, I'm not going to read all of that, because I would say a very pessimistic picture he's painting for these people. Now he says in verse 33, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand. In other words, he makes it very clear that no God had ever delivered his people out of the king of Assyria's hand, and he didn't think the God of Israel would deliver these people. 